Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom course, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There will be a link to a two-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10, and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 24 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't already, please take a quick moment to subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Overcast, CastBox, and most other podcast players. The Income Investing Podcast is a weekly show that's published on Wednesday mornings. We explore any and all types of investments, as long as they can pay monthly or quarterly dividends. Right now, we're covering investment funds. On today's episode, we'll be looking at their structure and how they are set up. And before that, we spent several months on real estate investment trusts, or REITs, and on direct mortgage lending. As you may know, income investments can come with a lot of different perks. First, their dividends can be used to supplement or to even replace your regular income, which you might earn from a job or from your business. Second, many of them can also appreciate in value. So not only can you earn revenue from them each month, but you can also realize a capital gain. Third, they exist across sectors, industries, and geographies. In addition to investment funds and mortgage loans and REITs, there are also income stocks, royalty trusts, peer-to-peer loans, and countless other assets. You can participate in anything from real estate to energy, natural resources, utilities, and financial services. And fourth, many of these investments can be made with just a few hundred dollars, and that's certainly applicable to a lot of investment funds as well. Okay, so let's get to our weekly question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can always let me know what's on your mind at alexasadi.net slash podcast. Today's question is from Ken, who wanted some clarity about how investment funds can trade on the stock market. He was under the impression that the stock market was just for stocks. Ken, practically any business can be listed on the stock market. When you take a company public, all you're really doing is allowing their shares to be more easily invested in and traded by the public at large. In a few minutes, you're going to see that investment funds are basically like any other company. Indeed, you can buy stocks in a fund that trades on the stock market, so it's technically a stock by itself. And that fund can also invest in other stocks. 
I'm going to do an entire show later on about the stock market and on what going public means, but I think this episode will shed some light on why funds can go public. All right, so last week was our introduction to investment funds. We covered the basics and looked at some of their pros and some of their cons. We saw that funds are businesses that raise money from a group of investors, often thousands of them, and then invest their money into various assets. The goal is to provide a financial return and then distribute their earnings among those investors. So funds can have several advantages. The main two are that they can offer diversity because they frequently own hundreds or even thousands of different investments. And they can give investors exposure to industries that they may not want to or know how to invest in directly. We also saw that funds can have different objectives or mandates. Some aim to pay income to investors each month. Others focus on specific industries like real estate or clean energy. And others concentrate on strategies like short selling or value investing. And they are operated by a management team which charges fees to the fund for its services. Today, we're going to look at some of the functional elements of investment funds. We're going to crack them open, peer inside, and explore their structure. Aside from generally expanding our knowledge about funds, this material is important because it's going to help us understand our rights as investors. But before we go any further, let me quickly give a shout out to our favorite sponsor, Pacific Income. Pacific Income is a financing company that provides capital to growing businesses and real estate projects. We lend up to a quarter million dollars to Canadian and American entrepreneurs. Get the capital you need to build your empire. To learn more, you can visit us online at packincome.com. That's PACincome.com. Or you can go back a couple episodes, listen to episode 21 of Income Investing, which was dedicated entirely to talking about Pacific Income. As we saw last week, there are hundreds of thousands of funds out there. Some are small private companies and others are huge and control billions of dollars of wealth. But despite the ecosystem's diversity, they mostly all share a common structural framework. This can be deconstructed into four elements. First, there are investors who own equity in the fund. Second, the fund has a mandate, which is stipulated through official documentation. Third, the fund is operated by a management team. And fourth, individual investors have limited power over that management team. This isn't only important for understanding how funds are assembled. These four statements can be turned into questions, which will comprise the foundation to our due diligence in later episodes. What is the equity structure of the fund? What is the fund's mandate? Who are the fund's managers? And what kinds of powers do we have over those managers? If those questions can't be answered, then there might be an issue with the fund. So let's take a closer look at each one of those statements. Number one, investors own equity in the fund. A fund itself is a concept, not a legal entity. It's just like any other business. Just as a real estate development firm might be structured as a corporation, a fund could be any sort of entity. The only difference between a fund and a property developer is that the fund tries to earn profits by investing money instead of by developing real estate. A fund will usually be built as either a corporation, a trust, or a limited partnership, or an LP, depending on what makes the most legal and financial sense. 
Among other things, it can vary per jurisdiction and on how its investments are taxed. For example, a real estate fund in Canada might be structured as a trust, while a stock fund in the U.S. could be an LP. But regardless of structure, each one of these entities is divided into units of ownership, and each unit is entitled to receive an equal amount of profit from the business. A unit of ownership in a corporation is known as a share. In a trust, it's a trust unit, and in a limited partnership, it's called an LP unit. So if you have shares in a corporation, you're known as a shareholder. And if you have units in a trust or a limited partnership, you're a unit holder. For example, let's say that a real estate fund is structured as a corporation with 100 shares. In 2018, it earned a profit of a million dollars, which it then pays out as a dividend. Therefore, the profits would have to be distributed 100 ways, so each share would be entitled to $10,000. If you owned 70 of those shares and I owned the other 30, you'd get $700,000 in dividend payments, and I'd get the other $300,000. The same would apply if the fund was a trust or an LP, except that the profits would be paid to unit holders, not shareholders. So how do you become a shareholder or a unit holder in a fund? Well, like other businesses, funds can raise money from investors by selling them ownership units. For instance, if it was a corporation, it might raise $100 million by selling 50 million shares at $2 each. You could own 5,000 shares in the fund by investing $10,000. If the fund generated a profit, it would then be split 50 million different ways, and you'd get whatever the profit per share is times 5,000 because you own 5,000 shares. As we discussed in episode 18, if you have ownership in a business, then you have equity in it. You're entitled to a portion of its profits, but your investment is not guaranteed. The performance of your investment is directly correlated to the performance of the business. Even if the fund invests in debts, like mortgage notes, you're still an owner, not a lender. The fund itself, in that case, would be the lender. As such, when you invest in a fund, you will have shares or units in it and therefore own equity. If the fund generates a profit, then it'll be paid to you in accordance with how much equity you have. Now, funds will often be comprised of several layers of different entities, again for legal and taxation reasons. The fund itself might be one entity, but it could have other entities below it. For instance, it might be determined that from an operational standpoint, a real estate fund is best structured as a limited partnership. However, LPs can be harder to take public and are not always eligible for tax-advantaged accounts like RSPs and Roth IRAs. As such, the fund might be formed as a trust, which can be more conducive to the public markets. So that would solve the taking public and the tax account issues. However, after the trust receives money from investors, it might then flow it down to an LP, which is then used to invest in real estate. So the capital raising activities would be done by the trust, but the actual investments into property would be done by the LP, which is subsequently owned by the trust. Large funds frequently use what are called SPVs, or special purpose vehicles. These are entities used for individual investments that are made by a fund. They're usually there to protect the business from legal liability if any of its individual investments run into trouble. So to continue with our example, the LP might form a corporation to hold each property that it buys, and those corporations would be SPVs. 
So if you try to envision what our fund would look like, it would be a trust on the top, which is what investors buy into. The trust then flows that money down to the LP, and the LP might have a dozen corporations below it, the SPVs, which it uses to make investments through. While funds are owned by equity investors, many of them can also borrow money. It's a common strategy for ones that want to leverage their investments and potentially magnify returns, also magnify their risk. However, investors that lend money to funds are creditors. They're not considered investors in the traditional sense. Now, a few minutes ago, we used an example of a fund that was made up of 50 million shares. But why did it have that amount? Why not 20 million shares or even 50 billion shares? The number of ownership units is usually determined by how much money the fund wants to raise, but it will always dovetail with how much each one is sold for. For instance, instead of selling 50 million shares for $2 each to raise $100 million, the fund could have sold 20 million shares for $5 each. It would have accomplished the same thing. Some funds have a fixed number of shares or units. Once they've sold them all and presumably raised the money that it wanted, that's it. The only way to invest after that would be to buy the shares or units from an existing owner. This is called a closed-end fund. An open-end fund is one that issues and cancels its shares or units based on the number being bought and sold. When new investors come in, it will issue new units, and when investors cash out, it will cancel their units. So the number of units or shares in the fund can change continuously. For that reason, you typically buy the units from the fund rather than from existing investors. Number two, the fund has a mandate. The second commonality between funds is that their mandate or objective is usually laid out in its governing documents. Corporations have articles of incorporation and corporate bylaws. Trusts have declarations of trust and trust indentures. And limited partnerships have LP agreements. These documents explain the particulars of the company, often including the goal of the business, such as paying monthly dividends to investors, who manages the business, how the managers are hired and fired, how the managers are compensated, the rights and responsibilities of the managers, the rights and responsibilities of the shareholders or unit holders, how many shares or units can be issued by the business, and how liquid those units or shares are. For example, let's say that you're researching a fund that is structured as a trust. If you wanted to know whether you're able to vote, you could find that in the Declaration of Trust, probably in a section called the Rights of Unit Holders. These governing documents are crucial to understanding your rights as an investor and what's going to be done with your money. If a fund does not have a clear mandate, then your antennas should be raised high into the sky. We're going to talk a lot more about mandates in later episodes. Number three, the fund is operated by a management team. Regardless of structure, each fund will have a management team. Somebody has to run the business. So corporations will usually have two layers of senior management. The highest is a board of directors, which is elected by the shareholders. And those directors then appoint officers, like a CEO and a CFO and so forth. However, it is possible to be both an officer and a director, so there might technically be two layers of management, but there's practically one. It really depends on the business. Trusts are managed by trustees, and limited partnerships are managed by a general partner. For example, Pacific Income LP 
is a limited partnership. It's managed by Pacific Income Capital Corporation, which is its general partner, and I am a director and the CEO of the general partner. Directors, officers, trustees, and the general partner must all operate the business in accordance with its mandate. Among other things, fund managers determine how much income or dividends get paid to investors, if any. For example, if there is a profit of a million dollars, the managers might only pay out $900,000. They might keep the rest of the cash in the bank or make other investments with it. They can do as they please, so long as it's in accordance with the mandate and in the shareholders' or unit holders' best interests. We're going to talk about this a lot more down the road. Number four, individual investors have limited power over management. As mentioned, the rights of shareholders and unit holders are defined in the fund's governing documents. In most cases, investors will have the ability to vote on important matters like nominating new managers, but they will have no control over the day to day business. This follows what we discussed last week. One of the risks of investing in any business, including a fund, is that you're ultimately entrusting your capital to someone else. Unless you own enough units or shares to have an influential voice, your power, by vote or otherwise, is going to be restricted. As a rule of thumb, you probably need to control at least 10% of the equity to have any sort of meaningful sway. On its face, this may seem unfair. If you give someone your money, no matter how little, shouldn't you be able to affect what they do with it? But managers have an obligation to do good for the fund collectively. They're not supposed to satisfy thousands of individual opinions, especially on operational matters. It would be impossible to run a business if every decision required a vote from investors. Presumably, the manager is the expert, so investors are giving up some of their liberties so that the manager can run the company effectively. And again, those liberties should be defined in the fund's mandate. However, in many cases, investors as a whole have a lot of, if not absolute, power over management. If they are united and control enough votes, then they can exercise their wishes. If the managers won't comply, then they can probably be terminated and even sued. The challenge, of course, is that it may be harder for smaller investors to own enough in the fund to make a difference. So to summarize, practically all investment funds can be outlined by four statements. One, investors own equity in the fund. Two, the fund has a mandate. Three, the fund is operated by a management team. And four, individual investors have limited power over those managers. So let's tie these four commonalities in together. When you invest in a fund that is a corporation, you will receive shares in it, among other things, The rights of your shares will be defined in the Articles of Incorporation and other corporate bylaws. The company will be managed by a board of directors and the officers that they appoint. When you invest in a fund that is a trust, you will receive trust units. Their rights are defined by the Declaration of Trust or the Trust Indenture, and the business will be managed by trustees. When you invest in a fund that is a limited partnership, you will receive LP units. Their rights are defined by the LP agreement, and the business will be run by the general partner. So let's leave it here for today. Next Wednesday, we're going to dive even deeper into the concept of ownership units like shares, trust units, and LP units. Among other things, we're going to look at something called classes, which are prevalent in many investment funds. As usual, thanks for joining me today. 
Please feel free to visit alexazasadi.net slash podcast to learn more about my online course called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. And I'll talk to you in a few days.